Thank you so much, John, for reading God's Word. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Well, it's a very cosy service this afternoon. I think lots of people are away for holidays, uh, and some of you may be back as well, or you're going away soon. Right, so to follow uh, the sermon this afternoon, uh, please keep your Bibles open to Isaiah chapter 7 to 9. Uh, and also in your bulletin on page 3, there is an, a sermon outline. So please use that to follow the sermon as well. As we begin, let me ask you this question. What is in a name? What is, what is behind the names that people give to their children? Some people really put serious thoughts into naming their children, and they, they want to invest these names with special meaning or significance. And it's often based on the aspirations that they have for them. So this is a timeless tradition. From the time that Lamech named his son Noah in Genesis 5, because he hoped that this boy would bring rest to humanity from the midst of the work that God has cursed. Others among us may be more carefree, more ting-tai, right, about how we give names. Sometimes we give names based on the child's appearance or attributes. Uh, so, for example, Albert Einstein was given this childhood nickname by his parents, the Doppy One, the Doppy One because clearly his parents didn't, didn't think very highly of him because Einstein was slow to talk. He only talked after three. And uh, before he talked, he used to mumble to himself. But now we all know that nothing can be further from the truth. It's one of the brightest minds that ever lived. Now, let me share with you how my wife and I also had a thoughtful process for choosing names for our children. Some of you may know that we named our first child Matthias, after the Australian publisher Matthias Media, which in turn was named after the replacement apostle in Acts chapter 1, Matthias. Our second child, Megan, was named because at the first ultrasound scan, we felt that the image looks like a dried prune. So we named her after Chinese Megan. Megan. Our third child is named Matilda because we remember our time in Australia fondly and we like the song Watsing Matilda. And so we, but if you know the lyrics, it's actually not so good. But anyway, that's how we picked the names for our three children. Don't worry, we also went to check the original meaning of these names. So they do have good meanings as well. So for example, Matthias also means gift of God. Megan is actually Welsh for Margaret, which means pearl. And Matilda means strength in battle. And she is the most feisty one among them. Now, what about the names of this child Jesus that we, we read about in Isaiah as well as in Matthew? What was Jesus named for? What aspirations did God and the prophets have for him? And what human needs did he come to meet? Well, we'll discover today that to all who long for God's presence, rule and salvation, this child will be God's answer for all this. We'll be looking at three passages in turn, two from Isaiah's prophecy about this child and one from Mary and Joseph's response to its fulfillment in Matthew. So we'll see how Jesus fulfills our greatest human need for a God who will dwell with us, a God who will rule over us, and a God who will save us from our sins. Isaiah, this section that we read, Isaiah chapter 7, all the way to chapter 9, verse 7, 
it records for us the prophet Isaiah's words that were spoken to King Ahaz, this evil king of Judah, when the nations of Syria and the northern kingdom of Israel came up against God's people in Judah. And this joint attack caused God's people and the king to lose heart. So the question now is, whom will Ahaz and the people of Judah trust? Isaiah was sent by God to urge them not to be afraid, but rather to trust God to deliver them. But sadly, Ahaz eventually turned not to trust in God, but to trust in Assyria, and he sought a military alliance with them. So these three chapters of Isaiah are one section because they are strung together with a list of children's names. Each of these names have a special significance. Each assures us of God's salvation. So the first name is Isaiah's son, Shia Jashuf, in chapter 7, verse 3. And this name means a remnant shall return or a remnant shall repent. It promises that a faithful remnant will return after God has judged his people. In chapter 7, verse 14, and as well as in chapter 8, we meet this uh, child who's named Emmanuel, which means God is with us. Chapter 8, verse 1, we have another son of Isaiah, and this is slightly more complicated. His name is Maher Shala Hashbas. Anyone wants to name your child after this name? <laughs> A bit complicated. Well, his name means the spoil speeds, the prey hastens, and it describes the future fates of Syria and Israel who are attacking Judah right now. Right? And lastly, we have in chapter 9, verse 6, the royal child who has many names, or rather one name with four titles, and is called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. See, all these children's names were to assure Ahaz that God will deliver him and his nation from the enemies. And so the first thing that God does is to promise Ahaz a sign, a mysterious sign of a child named Emmanuel. And so let's read together from chapter 7, verse 10. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let's read together. Let it be as deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, as you take a look uh, on the surface, it seems like King Ahaz was right to not want to test God, right? Because Jesus himself would do so later uh, when he was tested by, by Satan. And this is in accordance with Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. But you see, if you look carefully, it is God himself who first offers Ahaz a sign. Ahaz didn't realize that instead of the danger is not that he will test God, but rather that he will fail this test that God has set for him. This test is to see whether Ahaz will trust God and depend on him, or will he instead trust Assyria, trust men to deliver him. Isaiah warned Ahaz in chapter 7, verse 9, just before this, 
If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. And so it has eventually his faithlessness, his confidence that was placed in Assyria would lead to devastation upon himself and his nation. Now this past week, I was away in Japan and on Thursday, we had a family uh, trip to Disneyland, Tokyo. And I discovered that unlike the theme parks here in Singapore, there are no directional signages around. All we got was this very complicated map. Right? And then we went into the city, and then in the city, we also noticed that the Japanese don't seem to like to place their signboards prominently on tall buildings. So what we saw was something like this. Right? Just, just lots, of, lots of tall buildings, no signages. We don't know what building this is. And so we couldn't get around very much. And that was only then that I appreciated guidance from signs and also from Google Maps. Right? Sometimes we may think too much of ourselves as Ahaz did, and we ignore God's signs, which are meant to guide us and to establish our faith, and we ignore them at our own peril. And this sign is given to us from verse 14 onwards. It says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. See, before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, this perhaps refers to the traditional age of 13, when Jewish boys become legal adults and they're held accountable for their own actions. Much younger than our, our kids today, right? So uh, by the age of 18, they can go to the army, but they still cannot vote, right? So uh, our, we treat our boys in Singapore a bit more harshly. Right? But Jewish boys become legal adults at the age of 13, and they are held accountable for their actions. And since this united attack on Judah took place around 736 to 734 BC, 13 years more or less fits into the timeline here. Right? Because in 732 BC, Syria fell to the Assyrians, followed by Israel in 722 BC. And then, so this 13 years was within this window, and finally, Judah's lack of faith will result in its own devastation by Assyria in 701 BC. Okay. So, who then is this boy who's named Emmanuel? Who is this? Well, he's likely one of the sons of Ahaz or perhaps Isaiah. If not, it could be one of the many sons born to the people of Judah because they named this child Emmanuel in gratitude to God for being with them and causing the, the, the Syrian and the Israelite armies to flee from them. But at most, at best, this is only a secondary fulfillment of the prophecy. The primary one, the primary realization, only took place more than 700 years ago into the future. And we shall see this when Matthew quotes Isaiah 7 verse 14 in Matthew chapter 1. Now this name, Emmanuel, means God with us. God's presence with his people 
would have delivered them from the combined forces of Syria and northern Israel. But it's also a warning to his people. God's presence, continued presence with his faithless people will ultimately result in judgment on them. And yet in his faithfulness to keep his promises, God's presence with his people will always remain, even if it's only with the remnants that remains after the judgment. And so is Isaiah's first son's name, Shia Jashuf, is significant here. It tells us that a remnant shall return, or a remnant shall repent, and Emmanuel, God, will continue to dwell with this remnant's people. Bible scholar John Oswald says this, that the presence of a transcendent and holy God with us may well mean will and woe together. To the extent that we are dependent on Him, His presence results in blessings. But to the extent that we refuse to depend on Him, on God, His presence is an embarrassment and a curse. Both realities are implicit in His presence. So it was when Christ walked the roads of Palestine. The same one whose presence was a blessing at the table of Zacchaeus in Luke 19 was a curse at the table of Simon the Pharisee in Luke 7. See, Jesus' presence with us, whether it is in the first coming or the second coming, is always to deliver his people, but at the same time also to judge his enemies. So to sum up uh, here, Isaiah chapter 7, verses 10 to 17, this mysterious sign of the child Emmanuel shows us that God is always with his people, both to deliver and to judge. By the end of this section, from Isaiah 7 to 9, in the climax, which is found in chapter 9, verses 1 to 7, we are then introduced to another child, and this child has a manifold name. Most likely, this is the same child as the one in Isaiah 7, right? This is the child who will rule over us. So let's read together from Isaiah 9, verse 1 onwards. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he's made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You've multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. So one day, judgment will come upon God's people, and it will be gloom and anguish. But that is not the end. Just as the pain of childbirth will usher in the joy of a newborn, and the deepest darkness is followed by the brightness of dawn, so God's judgment of His people will lead to glory. And this will come from the most unlikely of places. Right? See the words in blue? The way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan. Galilee of the, nation, of the Gentiles, of the nations, a land of deep darkness. This child wouldn't come from the capital of Judah. It wouldn't even come from the city of Jerusalem. But he'll come from a despised town in lower Galilee, 
called Nazareth. It's like saying that the next prime minister will come from a neighborhood school. Maybe not the next one, but the next one after that. Right? Why not? Why can't he come from a neighborhood school? Well, this unexpected child from this unexpected town will bring about a reversal for God's people. Out of gloom and anguish and contempt and darkness, the words in red, will come the words in yellow, glory and joy and gladness and light. There will be a complete reversal through this unexpected child. And here we also see that God's future actions are given in the perfect tense. He has made glorious. The people have seen a great light. On them has light shone. You have multiplied. You have increased. The perfect tense. As if they have already happened. And this is often called the prophetic perfect. This prophetic perfect, these are sure to happen. And it won't be just for the southern kingdom of Judah alone because Zebulun and Naphtali from the north are mentioned as well. And God has multiplied the nation. There is a reunification of Israel and an expansion to the land of the Gentiles as well. And then in verses 4 to 6, Isaiah gives three reasons why this reversal will take place for Judah. And so there are three fours, right? which is because. So in verse 4, uh, because God will break the yoke of his burden, the staff for his shoulder, and the rod of his oppressor, as on the day of Midian. Now, the day of Midian refers to Judges 6 to 7, how God used Gideon and his 300 men, right? So, the original 300. They were severely overpowered by their enemies, the Midians, and their allies. And yet, God used this 300 and Gideon to overpower his enemies. So what God can do for his people isn't a dream. He has done it before in the past. Verse 5, God will burn as fuel for fire every boots of the trampling warrior and every garment rolled in blood. So basically God is going to put an end to all wars so that our SAF EMAT will be out of business. And all the NS men here can dispose of our combat boots and our number four uniform. Basically, God wins the war once and for all, and he establishes eternal peace. Lastly, in verse 6, God will give us a child, and this child will bear the government on his shoulder. And that's the greatest surprise here. How will God win this war and bring peace? By a child a weak child, a child who's coming from an unexpected place. Now, anyone here think that your baby son or daughter or your nephew or niece or your grandchild will ever become a warrior and deliverer for Singapore? No, right? Unlikely. Right? More likely, they are the ones making us worry for them and they completely depend upon us. And yet, Isaiah says that this promised child will rule and will conquer. And he will further introduce this child to us in verse 6, the second half of verse 6. This child has only one name. His name shall be caught, but he's given four different titles in one name. Right? So firstly, he's called Wonderful Counselor. This child will give wonderfully wise counsel that will confound the foolish human wisdom. He's also called Mighty God. 
This child will have God's true might. He is truly divine, not like many human kings who falsely claim divinity for themselves. He's also called Everlasting Father. Because he's divine, he's everlasting. And this child can also claim eternal fatherhood, the kind of fatherhood that pours himself out in loving service for his children. This child is also called Prince of Peace. He will be a, a peaceful ruler rather than a brutal dictator. And through him, peace or reconciliation will be established between God and man and between peoples. Now, these four titles put together sum up this manifold name of this child. As John Oswald say again, these titles underscore the ultimate deity of this child deliverer. This divine child will be a ruler who is wise, mighty, fatherly, and peaceful all at once. And where does he come from? In terms of lineage, this child to be born one day cannot be Isaiah's son because he's a prophet, he's not a king. Nor is he Ahaz's righteous son, Hezekiah, who has already been born because this child is to be born in the future. Right? So clearly he refers to the Messiah, the future Davidic king who was promised in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And so Isaiah 9-7 makes this even clearer by saying, Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now, if you look at Isaiah 9, 7, now you compare it with God's promise to David, to King David in 2 Samuel 7. Uh, let's read this together. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. See, if you put them together, you see that this child that Isaiah is talking about will be the son of David, whose rule will last forever and ever, and who will establish an eternal dynasty for David's house. None of the other descendants of David can ever do this because they are all mortal sinners. So to sum up Isaiah 9, the manifold name of this child shows us that he is the king. He will rule over always God's people as God's divine and eternal king. Finally, we come to Matthew 1. And in Matthew 1, we see the fulfillment of this prophesied child. Right, this prophesied child has promised the mysterious sign of the Emmanuel and also in the manifold name of the eternal child king. And we see this in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 to 25. Uh, so we, let's read this together uh, about the miraculous birth of this child who will save us from sin. Verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to, to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. 
But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Next slide. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. See, the Gospel of Matthew opens with a genealogy of Joseph, and this genealogy traces Jesus' line all the way back to, to David. So this son born to Joseph would be a son of David. He'll be part of the royal line. But what can this child do that other kings in David's bloodline have failed to do so far? How can he obey God and so establish an eternal kingdom and sit on David's throne forever? Well, for this child to do this, he would have to be divine, right? And that's why he cannot just be Joseph's son by human descent. Since then, he will be merely human and he'll be born with original sin. He'll be tainted and guilty from Adam's disobedience. No, this child must be born of a woman to be fully human, and yet he must be conceived by a virgin through the Holy Spirit so that he'll be fully divine as well, that he might be born without sinful nature. And Matthew sees this as the ultimate fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. But see, Jesus' name here wasn't simply a declaration that God is with us. Rather, Matthew sees the name Jesus as an affirmation of this king's divinity. He's actually God with us. Emmanuel is God becoming man and coming down to this earth to be dwelling with us. This is what we call the incarnation, when God took on human form. So for those of us wondering if God is real, and if so, why he doesn't just show himself to us, then Jesus' incarnation was God doing just that. There was a very popular song in the 1990s by Joan Osborne. It's called One of Us. And I remember hearing this a lot in the army camp. And he's saying, what if God was one of us, just a slob like one of us? And I found this online meme where British preacher Charles Spurgeon is made to answer, what if God was one of us? He was. God did become one of us in the incarnation. So whenever I was doing my PT in army camp and I was thinking, what if God was one of us? Does Jesus understand the hardship that we're going through in national service? Actually, he does because a change took place permanently in the Godhead when Mary's child was born. There is now humanity in the Trinity. This child, this son, was, and even now still is, fully God and fully human. And that's also how Jesus can also fulfill the, the divine name that was given in Isaiah 9. How he can be wonderful counsellor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Because being fully God and fully man, 
Jesus was able to die a sinless death because he had no human sin. And yet he was also able as a human being to die bearing our sin as our substitute on the cross. And that same song has an opening line and says, If God had a name, what would it be? Jesus' birth also answers that for us. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. See, the name Jesus from the Old Testament Hebrew name Joshua or Yeshua means God saves. And that name also defines for us Jesus' mission in the Incarnation. And that is to save his own people from sins. That is how Jesus fulfills the role of everlasting Father and Prince of Peace. He serves his subjects, his children, sacrificially by giving of himself sacrificially for us on the cross. And there he also made peace between holy God and sinful human beings. In Matthew 1, verses 18 to 25 then, we have the miraculous birth of the child who will save us from our sins by dying on the cross because he was fully God and fully man, and he still is. So what is it in a name? We have seen that every single one of Jesus' names so far means so much. So in closing, here are some lessons and implications I think we can draw from Jesus' names in Isaiah and Matthew. So for those of us who long for God's presence, rule and salvation, Jesus' birth fulfills all this and more. From the name Emmanuel, God with us, this child is God, present with his people. Now some of us may not feel his presence very close today because of some difficult circumstances that we're going through, some relational conflict or some physical or mental ailment. This year, some of us here would have lost a loved one. You may have lost your job and you're still looking for one. You may have moved to a new place, a new country, a new school. And you wonder if God understands your struggles, whether God cares. Well, Jesus' birth at Christmas is a reminder to us that God does care. And he cared so much that he came and dwelt among us as a human. Jesus understands our struggles and our needs because he was one of us. In Hebrews 4 verse 15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who every, in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And Jesus promises his everlasting presence with his people now and forevermore. But we cannot, remember, we cannot forget that God's presence with us can also be judgment. And so others among us may feel that God's presence is overwhelming for us. We are worn out by life and its worries. We wonder if God would ever cut us some slack and give us a break. Or perhaps our efforts to sort ourselves out so that we'll be right with Him has been so burdensome and futile. Well, Jesus came to break this heavy yoke upon our shoulders and to give us rest from working to please God in our salvation. Again, to quote Oswald, to the extent that we are dependent on God, His presence results in blessing. But to the extent that we refuse to depend on Him, 
His presence is an embarrassment and a curse. So this Christmas, let us reflect on how Jesus is Emmanuel and let his, bless, his, his presence bring blessing and rest and comfort to our weary souls. Jesus is also called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He's that divine God King who rules as God over us. He dispenses wonderful, wise counsel. He works mighty works of salvation. He cares for us as a father. And he makes peace between God and us. So for those of us who haven't made peace with God yet by submitting to Jesus' rule, he welcomes us now to bow in worship before him as we ponder on his majesty, as we ponder on the wondrous names that he has. God's king is a benevolent ruler who died to serve his subjects, and he rose to give us new life as citizens of heaven. He came for the first time to make peace with us, but he will come once again, and this time is to end all wars and to destroy his enemies. So come now before it's too late. Come and receive this reconciliation that Jesus offers to us. Now for those of us who are at peace with God because we have already caught Jesus our King, but we find that our life is still in a state of chaos, then we need Jesus to bring order to our lives today and every single day. Because we still stumble into sin and we still face relationship problems. Our health fail and we lose family and friends. May we ask for wise counsel from God's word for us to live daily. May we pray for his mighty works of deliverance in our lives over our sin and our conflicts constantly. And then may we rest wholly in his fatherly love for us and in the precious peace with God and with others that Jesus has won. And although life this side of heaven wouldn't ever be perfect, we can look forward to the King's return one day, very soon, to establish His eternal throne on earth as in heaven. Finally, Jesus is, as His name implies, our God who saves us from sins. He is God for us. He's fully God and fully man. And that is why His death on the cross is effective to pay for our sins and to make peace between God and us. So this Christmas, let us reflect on the birth of this child, this child who is God with us, who is God over us, and who is God for us. Before we close this time with our closing song, what child is this? Let's go to God in prayer. Right? Let's go to God together. Thank you, O Heavenly Father, for sending us your Son, Jesus Christ, that he came as a man so that now we may know that you are God with us through Emmanuel. So we may now live with you as God over us through Jesus, your eternal King. And so we may now experience your salvation as Jesus has died as God for us. Would you help us to know Jesus more deeply as Emmanuel, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace and Saviour King, as we reflect on His birth this Christmas season. 
bring us to bow our knees and worship Jesus, who gave up everything in obedience to you, so that he may bring us back to yourself. In Jesus' wondrous and mighty name we pray this. Amen.